And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's, a national chain of neighborhood grocery stores. Bruce, I love taking my two-year-old daughter in the cart to peruse the aisles. There's so much for her to look at. What about your kids? Yeah, my kids love it. Uh, we give them probably a couple of, of their frozen food items, maybe a week. And the produce is, is the best we can get out, out here. For the location of the Trader Joe's in your neighborhood, check out TraderJoe's.com. Also, did you know Trader Joe's has its own Instagram? It's the best place to find all the info on your favorite products and the new things you didn't even know you needed. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel. Joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman, although today we are in different parts of the country. Well, you are, Stu. You're in, uh, you're in Titletown, aren't you, as we speak? Yeah, so I've begun my spring football tour of the South, and what better place to start it than the home of the defending national champions? So what have you learned from your... You spent the whole day with Nick Saban? You spent a week with Nick Saban? How long did you get there? I got about 30 minutes with Nick Saban, okay. maybe 25 to 30 minutes. I'll take it. He didn't give me this, all the secrets or anything like that, and I don't know any better than anyone else if it's going to be Jalen Hurts or Tua, but I don't think Nick Saban knows that quite yet either. Obviously, that's the big storyline surrounding this team, but I was just as interested in talking with him about all of the changes that they're going through right now in terms of six new assistant coaches, five you know, changed over and then the 10th assistant. And obviously, a lot of great, they always lose a lot of great players from year to year. But in particular, this season, having to replace their top five defensive backs, that's a big reload at one position group. Yeah, it's crazy. I think we get used to all the play, so much turnaround around him, because we've seen a lot of assistants come and go, coordinators, we've seen it, whether it's Kirby Smart or Lane Kiffin, you go back to McElwain, Nussmeyer, it's just like, he's the one constant. I guess he and Scott Cochran, the strength coach or the main constants but this year it seemed like you had the 10th assistant you had you know jeff banks josh gaddis coming in you obviously have they flip both coordinators because one went to the nfl one goes to becomes a head coach of tennessee did you notice the difference in the vibe around the place well nick saban has come out and said that he intentionally with some of these openings wanted to go younger and i think not that that was a geezer staff before by any means, but there were a lot of guys who'd been either working with him or coaching the same position for, in some cases, as long as he's been the coach there. Now you're bringing in, for instance, a good example is the guy Pete Golding. He's the new co-defensive coordinator inside linebackers coach. And he found him at, of all places, UTSA, uh, where he was defensive coordinator. And he's in his early 30s. He's got, like, the long hair going, like... If I were to just, on the surface, pick two people who 
seem pretty opposite. It would be Nick Saban and this guy, but I don't know. You know, all that matters is that they work well together. Yeah, everything I've heard, he was a Frank Wilson guy at UTSA, and Saban and Frank have a, a go back a bit. I've always heard really good things about him. He's a really, really bright guy. He's a he's a back end guy, which all of Saban's coordinators have been, I believe. Um, you know, they all were. None of them were front guys, whereas Tosh Lupoy, who uh, Pac-12 fans know well, a little bit different pedigree than the coordinators he's had. So we'll see how the how that fits. They're not going to be hurting for talent. I know Minka's gone and Deron Payne is gone. I, I don't know. I would not worry about the defense. But so you've had you've had a close up look. You spent some time with Saban. If you're an Alabama fan, is there anything you'd be worried about? And if there is, what would it be? You're not worried about secondary, huh? Not really. No, not really. I mean, Saban's a secondary guy. Yeah. You know, I don't know. They've got I mean, some players there. Deontay Thompson started in the uh, Clemson game in the playoffs. He'll obviously be kind of taking over full-time for the, in the position Ronnie Harrison was. Trevon Diggs started early in the season last year before Levi Wallace took over. And then, remember, they've got Patrick Sertan coming in. They've got, you know, it's a really good freshman class they've got coming in of DBs. So, uh, look, at this point, it's how do you get worried too much about Alabama? I mean, it's year after year after year. We were just talking about this in the office earlier, uh, myself and, their, and, and one of their media relations people. They average, since Saban began, like, the run in 08, they only average one loss a year. It's, it's pretty consistent. Maybe they're going to lose one game. Is this so when you say is there a reason to be concerned? Is there some reason to think that this year they might lose two games? As of today, I, I don't think I could pinpoint something other than it's a lot of turnover on the coaching staff. But like you've said, they've, they've had a lot of turnover on the coaching staff throughout his time there. Although you go from only a couple years ago having Kirby Smart be the defensive coordinator for many years. And then Jeremy Pruitt had worked there before. Loxley, you both coordinators now, Loxley and Tosh Lupoy, are only a few years removed from being in those analyst roles uh, with the program. Yeah, I'm curious. I know you can't, on the record, talk to other people in that office, but how many guys did you recognize? Because I remember going there, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, and I ended up grabbing something to eat with one of the SIDs. And I think I ran into like six guys who were just guys I knew, who I don't even know if they were, none of them were coordinators. They were either a couple of position coaches or they were off-the-field guys. It's just... There's a lot of people who are people you've kind of crossed paths with either at other schools or in bigger roles than they may be in now. Well, I recognize Burton Burns, but he's now not one of the assistants. He's a, his assist, I think his official title is assistant AD for football. You still are basically part of the coaching staff, but in an off-the-field role. But for the most part, I don't know, there's so many random people in Alabama polos and windbreakers walking around the halls of that place. Because as you know, the, the whole staff, the whole support staff, it's, it's enormous. Hey, I want to ask you a question, and this is maybe throwing you for a little bit of a loop here, but when we're talking about the defending champs, I just before we started this, I knew you were there. I looked at their schedule. This seems like an extremely light, and we, I know this came up last year, you know, with you know them having not, because Florida State turned out to be a dud after what we thought they would be a top five team, and then they fizzled out after uh, Deontay Francois got hurt. If you look at the schedule now, they're non-conference. They're, they have Louisville, who's replacing Lamar Jackson. I don't think Louisville's a top 25 team or will be close to it. Arkansas State, he'll play uh, his, old, his, his old receivers coach. 
at, in his first year at Louisiana uh, when they play the Ragin' Cajuns, I guess in the late September, and then they play the Citadel. Those are the four non-conference games. And then if you look, the toughest road game they'll have will either be, I don't think it's going to be Ole Miss because they're rebuilding. I don't think it's going to be Arkansas. It's, you got Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt or LSU on the road you know, two weeks after that Tennessee game. I mean, at the end of the year, they have the Iron Bowl. This schedule looks looks like one of the lightest that they've had in a long time. And I'm sure we'll hear about that all season long, right? Oh, you guys are giving Alabama a pass. They don't play a tough schedule. Look, the they're dealing with a lot of... I mean, it's not a coincidence. A lot of the teams on their schedule, new coaches or rebuilding mode, and, why, and part of the reason they have new coaches is that these are programs that expect them to compete with Alabama, and they just haven't. So, you know, you're talking about an Ole Miss team that gave him all kinds of fits a couple years ago and is now uh, decimated. An A&M team that beat them once upon a time with Manziel and who they've just crushed year after year since then. If Jeremy Pruitt excuse me, succeeds at Tennessee, maybe that's a tough game a couple years from now, but probably not right now. I think... They won't... It, they pro- unless Jimbo, you know, has a fast start, which... I don't, which is going to be tricky because they do have a tough, you know, schedule in September. They probably will not face a ranked team until November at LSU, and I'm not sure LSU. LSU might, you know, with their schedule and they're replacing Geis and got to find a new quarterback, and they're going to be young. LSU might not be in the top 25. Didn't that happen last year too? You know, wasn't that the whole thing with the committee? Everybody saying, oh, the highest ranked team they beat was Mississippi State. Yeah, I mean, in November, at LSU, Mississippi State, then the Citadel, and then Auburn, kind of kind of where their season gets determined. And again, fairly confident they're going to get through, unless there's some unforeseen disaster, I think they're going to get through that with at 11-1 and one or, or better. And as we learned last year, it would take a pretty, it would basically take every power conference having a one-loss champ and them not winning the championship like last year, I think. For there to be a scenario where they miss it. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but this is kind of what we do in an off-season podcast. Do you want a quick two Jalen Hurts update? I do. Did you, uh, what did you get from I cracked the code. No, it's very standard. We're just going, you know, kind of one day at a time, make, doing all the things to make sure each of them gets better every day. And when time comes, by time it comes time for the season, you know, we're going to do whatever we think gives us the best opportunity to win football games. And that means what? That could mean one of them being the starter and the other one not playing, or it could mean one guy's got a, you know, they're different enough skill set that one guy's got a specific role. It could be that one guy starts for a few games and then the other guy takes over. They're not giving you any sort of specifics, but the one thing you get from talking to anybody around that program is they definitely reject the notion that, oh, it's definitely two and now. One half of one game, granted the biggest game of the year, but one half of one game, and now you're never going to see Jalen Hurts again. No, they consider this a legitimate competition. Yeah, well, like uh, we said, I mean, we referenced the Ohio State Braxton, Braxton Miller. I guess Braxton Miller was part of that a little bit, but it was, it was obviously Cardell Jones and JT Barrett. It got a little messy at times. It didn't quite play out the way I thought it would. I think Alabama is probably better suited to handle this kind of thing than, and, and I don't think, you know, I don't know that Cardell Jones had a, was completely loose cannon personality, but I just think he had a bigger personality than 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 Tua does. Tua doesn't seem like he would he would say anything that would kind of feed into anything. 
or have the path that would have said it. So, yep. I think uh, the way Urban handled it that year is a cautionary tale to maybe others who have that are in that situation. This is sort of that situation. I think his approach, and you're going to expect it all the way through media days. By the way, I had the honor of informing Nick Saban. He did not know that SEC Media Days is in Atlanta now. Oh, so he will not have to deal with the win-free crowd. Yeah. I'm sure he'll have to deal I kind of offhandedly crowd. said, like, you know you're going to get this question about 35 times. Uh, in, and I almost said in Hoover. I was like, oh, actually in Atlanta now. And he's like, oh, is that where it is? Didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you, uh, so yeah, go ahead. We, by the time people listen to this, you will be at another SEC school, correct? Yeah, so I'm, after I finish recording this podcast, actually, hit, get in the car, head to Tennessee, Hopefully get there in time to watch the uh, Villanova game tonight somewhere and uh, meet with... It's interesting how the four schools on this tour, three of the head coaches are either Nick Saban or Nick Saban, Nick Saban disciples by Pruitt and, uh, and, and Kirby Smart with Clemson wedged in between there. So just in general, it's great to be back out. This is, I couldn't believe it. Yesterday was the first time I, I got on a, went to an airport since I came home from the national championship game. That's, been, that's very unusual as you know, in our line of work. Yeah, well, it's a, in some ways, it's a luxury. I do feel like when you're around, you know, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I went down to San Diego for SI to go cover, as you informed me, the pod. Uh, it wasn't a regional yet for the basketball tournament. And I had crappy games, but I was able to spend some time with John Washington and their offensive coordinator. And just to be around talking to you know, guys in a program, and you just kind of get to people pick people's brains a little bit and find out what what is going on and what they're all about i just think it's um it's you kind of miss it because sometimes in the season even with tv you don't always have enough time to really get engaged and you know spend an hour with somebody maybe it's 15 minutes or so but it's it's just good uh you know to, to have that kind of proximity to a program that is successful and you just kind of are able to able to kind of be around it as opposed to, it's one thing, you know, we love reading what we can read from different beat writers and different people who get out, but just the firsthand knowledge you can get is on a whole different level. Yeah. And, and look, I love where I live up in Silicon Valley, but it's not a college football Mecca by any means. Stanford's the only program. I mean, it is, it's nearby and, and I like going over there, but in general, like I'm sitting in my house and talking to you every Monday about stuff that's going on in the SEC or the Big 12 or the Big 10, and you do feel pretty detached from it. So nothing beats the getting FaceTime part of the job. Hey, speaking of getting FaceTime, wow, what a segue I just pulled off. Do you remember at the Foster Farms Bowl? We both went to the Foster Farms Bowl. You were the sideline reporter, and I went and covered it just because it was in my backyard. And we're down on the sideline before the game, talking to people we recognize, one of whom was Tony Levine, the former Houston coach who, as of that game, was still Purdue's special teams coordinator. Well, not anymore. Tell us about the story you put up on SI on Monday. So, Tony, that was the last college football game Tony Levine thinks he will ever coach in. And he knew a couple of weeks beforehand that he was going to walk away from coaching. It had been something he'd been kind of wrestling around with for a bit of time. What was crazy was, so they won that game, they beat Arizona, and then about two weeks later... Jeff Brom, the head coach there, had issued a statement basically saying Tony Levine was was getting out of coaching. And it was pretty abrupt. And a lot of people were like, what the heck is he doing? Was there something behind it? Or why why was this 
you know, why did this happen? And the next day, Tony Levine had said, you know, he has four young kids. They, I think, range from like six to now from six to 13. I don't know if the age was quite that at the tweet, but that they just loved the this city of Houston. And that's where he'd been the head coach and also an assistant under Kevin Sumlin. And they were going to move back. And it was really a, a family decision. So I had played phone tag with Tony, but really hadn't been able to, you know, I kind of wondered, was everything all right? Because I had, you know, I've known him since he was an assistant at Louisville 15 years ago, but just hadn't heard much. And then we reconnected a couple weeks ago and started, he filled me in on what he was doing. And so he is getting out of coaching to own and operate a Chick-fil-A in basically the subdivision where they used to live. They still own the house. They were, were unable to sell it. And then they were just renting it. So the family is thrilled to go back to Houston. And this is obviously a different career path. What, what kind of amazed me, and there was a bunch of stuff in the story that was fascinating to kind of to, to drill down and, and kind of focus on, was when he went through this process, Chick-fil-A gets 40,000 applications to, to run their, one of their businesses for a franchise. They select less than 100 that is an insane, that's like a lottery, but they chose him and he is excited about it. And, uh, the, the really kind of jaw dropping part of this too, was not long after he found out and he's told Jeff Brom what he's going to do, his wife, Erin gets diagnosed and this is in mid December, gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And so when, you know, we spoke, she's, she says she's doing okay. She's, had all but one of the scheduled chemotherapy treatments. But she said, you know, it's the way the Lord works is like, you know, she feels very fortunate that the decision with Tony happened the w when it did because he's able to be home a lot more and has more flexibility and to, you know, if she needs to take a nap or she needs to take a breath. He's, you know, he's there to, you know, because they have four young kids. And so it was a pretty fortuitous timing in regard to, because of her health situation. Then the other thing that was kind of kind of just like a head scratcher was he was told me, so you're not going to believe this, but right next door, basically, to our business, where our Chick-fil-A is going in in six weeks, David Bailiff, who lives in his subdivision, their buddies, the old rice coach, owns, is part owner of a po'boy shop. So they're business competitors. So it's, uh, it was just a very interesting story to work on. Yeah, I got a lot of questions, but uh, let me start with this. Did he know before he got he decided he was going to leave coaching that it was going to be to own a Chick-fil-A, or is that he decided to step away and then looked at his options and that was the thing that came up? No, they have a good family friend who owns some Chick-fil-A's, and they had asked about the business. And so his wife had told me, so Tony Levine gets fired from the, as the head coach of the University of Houston after the 2014 season. And he spent about 14 months out. And she said she noticed a, a change in him because he'd spent so much time around his, the house and around his kids. And he got to spend more time being, being a dad and, you know, going to dance recitals and going to flag, you know, coaching them in flag football and going to basketball practice and soccer practice and all this other stuff that quite honestly, as a coach and certainly as a head coach, you don't have the time to do. And so I think, that was when the seed was planted in his head. And then they had, you know, he got a job with Jeff Brom, who they went back to their days at Louisville and their families are close. And he moved the family to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And then obviously Brom 
a year later from that, got the Purdue job. So Tony moved, and I think they ended up moving back to, they finished out the school year, but then I think the family moved back to Houston. So it was just, you know, it was kind of a challenging timing. And then I don't think he found out for a while that you're going to get this opportunity. Because as I said, the rates to land a Chick-fil-A franchise are pretty long odds. So once that happened, then they were able to kind of make this work. And, you know, as I said in the story, Jeff Brom told him, hey, you know, for some reason you don't you want to come back to football, you know, just give me a call and I'm waiting for you kind of thing. So, you know, it was a sweet story on that regard. You know, by the way, this is not entirely unprecedented. This when your story made us look back and I it's actually four years ago at this point. You remember when an Iowa assistant, Eric Johnson, left to open up Culver's? yeah, I didn't remember that, but Tony had told me about it, and he had mentioned that to me. So I knew a little bit you know, about it. They had had a conversation at one point, so I knew a little about it. Surprised it doesn't happen more often. Yeah, well, look, we had Gene Chizik on this podcast. What's different in that regard is Gene came back for left, you know, left coaching for, it's been a year now, but he's in broadcasting. I think it probably happens more maybe with guys who aren't quite as high profile maybe it's you know i i have a good friend who has started out as a oklahoma state ga and then was a coordinator at small schools and just realized hey the money is better than me bouncing around but the hardest thing is this you don't have any real stability just you know you don't know if you're out of school look i mean tony levine ended up going with you know jeff brom to purdue you know it's obviously a bigger job but you know it's just you don't find many guys who are who are in the same. You're at Nick Saban. He's been there a long time. He's by far at the top of the food chain. There aren't a lot of situations worked out the way Nick Saban has it at Alabama. You just know a lot of guys who, if their kids are able to be in one place for five years, that's a long time. Yeah, and I think that because we're talking both in Chizik's case and Tony Levine's case, where they were head coaches, they got out of it for a little bit. They. It's like you said, like a lot of these guys just every year, year after year, it's just find the next coaching job, find the next coaching job. And they never take time to really or have a chance to come up for air and light and see that there is life outside of football. And you know what? It is nice to spend more time with your family. Maybe if you did, we'd see more stories like this. Now, I don't know why they all want to open fast food restaurants, but I guess that just catches more attention than maybe somebody who leaves and goes and sells insurance. Well, I think in, t- in Tony's case... A lot of the elements that his friend who were, who runs some Chick-fil-A's had told him, there was some crossover to the coaching world in terms of you're, you're leading an operation, there's a competitive aspect, not to say there isn't a competitive aspect in a lot of other business jobs, but also, you know, you're training people, there is a, a big component to like recruiting and bringing on people. So I think there's a lot of, he felt like there was a lot of crossover that, kind of work the same way in terms of developing people and giving people a chance to grow in, in, into, uh, into the roles they're in. So I can understand that part of it, but yeah, it's just, I think for a lot of people, you know, it comes back to just a family situation of like, what's best to just to get to spend time around your kids and to be home, you know, to be home with, with them and your wife. It's just a, uh, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on, not just with the co- for the coach themselves, but certainly with with their kids and their wives and and what they do. I mean, it's 
that's the thing that I feel like just from covering college football for two decades now and knowing some people, some of these personal situations, it is different. It's not to say that, you know, we get on planes to go to stuff and you may sit next to a traveling salesperson or, you know, somebody who's in the military, you know, they're making a lot of sacrifices for their family. And there's a lot of the families are making a lot of sacrifices for them, quite honestly, too. So it's a, um, you know, as you and I are young parents, I think we see the reality of, of, of it probably better now than we did when we were just, just working. So changing gears in your, just right there in your neck of the woods in Manhattan beach, what on earth is going on with Jim Mora and Josh Rosen? Yeah, this has gotten a little weird, even by Jim Mora standards. So what started this, Jim Mora has been hired by NFL network and he has certainly TV experience. He had come from NFL network before he was at UCLA. And so on their path to the draft show, I believe it was, because I think I saw this, he talked about how he, if he's the Browns, he takes Sam Darnold, USC quarterback, over Josh Rosen with the first pick in the draft. And the, the examples he cites is, be, quote, because of fit and Darnold's blue-collar, gritty attitude. Well, that's obviously, can certainly be seen as not the most flattering thing in reference to his former quarterback, Josh Rosen. And so with that getting a lot of attention and it kicked into high gear today when I think people got wind of the comments because maybe they weren't watching the NFL Network show that he was on. And then he said, spoke to Peter King from SI to, to kind of put that more in context. And I'm going to just going to read to you what he had said. Josh, I think without a doubt, is the number one quarterback in the draft. He's a franchise changer. He's got the ability to have an immediate impact. His arm talent, intelligence and the, his ability to see the game and diagnose the game is rare. He'd come to the sidelines after a play, and it was uncanny. He could see right away exactly where he made every decision. Quote, he needs to be challenged intellectually so he doesn't get bored. He's a millennial. He wants to know why. Millennials, once they know why, they're good. Josh has a lot of interest in life. If you can hold his concentration level and focus only on football for a few years, he will set the world on fire. He has so much ability, and he's a really good kid. End quote. There's a lot to go there. and I mean, I don't, after listening to that whole quote in context, I have to admit, being on the go today, I'd only really seen the millennial part. It seems like he's being mostly very complimentary of him, but then that millennial, throwing in the millennial thing and basically suggesting that he lacks focus is going to raise a red flag. Yeah, if you can hold his concentration level and focus only on football for a few years, he will set the world on fire. The assumption, whether it's it's not in, intended or not, is that Sam Darnold doesn't have that issue. You don't need to worry about his concentration level or his focus. It's on football, quote, which is what these teams that are going to spend millions are wanting it to be on. So... I don't know. Is is Jim Moore indirectly doing Josh Rosen a favor by saying, hey, Cleveland, you don't want to mess with this. Let's let Josh go to work with the Jets or the Giants where he may be better suited. Quite honestly, where Jim Moore knows some of the guys on those staffs better. And maybe, that's, maybe he's trying to do those guys a favor. Well, when the Sam Darnold comment came out, about the Browns, I did kind of think like, yeah, maybe he's trying to dissuade Cleveland from taking him for Josh Rosen's sake. I mean, I'll ask you, you know Josh Rosen better than most. What, and you know the NFL, of the franchises that are high in the draft and, and we assume are going to take a quarterback, where would he 
do you think be the best fit? My gut is he's going to end up in New York. And I, I would have thought the Jets, and this is partly because the day after Darnold's pro day, which was during the rain, it poured here even worse the next day. And that was the day UCLA worked out at a private workout at UC, for uh, the Jets were out at UCLA for Josh Rose. And I heard he lit it up and was like on point on every throw and kind of wowed them. Now, you know, is he like Jeremy Bates, who used to be the offense coordinator at USC and he spent a bunch of time in the NFL. I don't know. Like, I'd be curious the fit between Jeremy Bates's personality and Josh Rosen's personality. But I think that's something that the Jets are are got to get sorted out. I mean, maybe it will work well. I my gut is the whole if you can hold his concentration level for a few years. I don't think that's I think that may be getting overblown. You know, I know two of the guys who of the three coordinators who coached Josh Rosen and spent a lot of time with him. I, I can't say I know Kennedy Polamalu very well, the third one, but I don't. I think there's there's going to be somebody who ends up with him in the first five picks who's going to be pretty happy with him. I I think this is getting into the into the Twitter echo chamber overblown. Just when when we started this podcast. I took a look as Josh Rosen was trending, and now it's getting into the point where you start looking at like the the stories that kind of feed into it. It's like from the Guardian, where it's talking about like the millennial thing, and it just it's now it becomes a, a issue thing more than anything else. And I think it's just kind of uh, kind of gets way overblown, to be honest. By the way, if you're hearing what sounds like a highway in the background right now, it's because I. Um well, I had you're to playing in traffic, Stu. Yeah, you got bored. You're playing in traffic, right? I had to choose one thing or the other. There was some drilling going on in the lobby of the hotel. That didn't seem like it was going to be ideal. So we're going for the more far away background noise. Want to get some emails? Let's do it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This one comes from Michael Galvin. Bruce, leading up to last year, you often mentioned the hype around Brandon Wimbush and speaking with Notre Dame's coaches. With the way last year ended, are you buying or selling Wimbush stock? Whew. The way it ended, I'm almost selling it just because I, I just, you know, Ian Book seemed they responded better to him. And there's a there's a term I heard from one of the old, it was like a, somebody's quarterback coach, and he described a guy as toolsy. And I think that's what Brandon Wimbush is. He's smart. He, he can run really well. He will run a fast 40 time, and he's got a really powerful arm. I don't know how I'm starting to wonder how well that translates necessarily to, you know, how accurate is he and some of those other things. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, you could be reading too much into one performance, but I'm not as high on him as I was after watching him at like, you know, through the Elite 11 where you can get also a false impression because if a guy is quote toolsy, then he'll pretty much catch your eye. And I don't know. I mean, where are you on it with Notre Dame right now? Sell, 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 sell. I mean, okay. they were they had a lot of success last season, almost in spite of him. As a with passer. a really good offensive line, good yep. running backs, yeah. And then I don't know which one caused which, but over the last few games of the season, certainly the Miami game, but going from there, Josh Adams suddenly, you know, I think he got hurt, right? He wasn't, he wasn't producing at the rate he was earlier in the year. And then Brandon Wimbush seemed to get exposed as well. Like they were, they were basically. You remember the year Ohio, Urban Meyer basically 
it got to the point because Braxton Miller wasn't a great passer and he didn't really have any receivers, but they had him. He's a great runner and they had Carlos Hyde. So they basically at times seemed like they were just running the option with the two of them. Mm-hmm. Like that's what Notre Dame seemed like to me last year. There was just, if you had to beat a team through the air, it just, they just weren't going to do it. Now, is Ian Book a better option? Is the freshman that's coming in a better option? I don't know. But I don't think, I mean, I remember how bullish you were on him and I just, I don't know. I can't see myself, uh, I can't see him being that player at this point. Okay. Bruce and Stu's from Eric Nodler. Would Paul Christ ever leave Wisconsin for a higher profile job? I, NFL head coach? That's, that's about it. I, is he really going to leave Wisconsin for another college head coaching job? Yeah, that would be my only thought is if he were to leave. You know, remember, he left Pitt to come home to Wisconsin. I mean, he seems really comfortable there. We did one of his games at midseason. It's tough not to like if, if you're comfortable up there. I mean, they have that program rolling. All the uh, It seems like all the people in state, especially the high school coaches, like him a lot more than they connected with Gary Anderson. The only place I could see him going would be the NFL. And I'm not saying he's going there, but that's the only place down the road, just because I could see him fitting in the NFL style-wise in terms of what he likes to do. But just in terms of that, I mean, he knows this program is built. They're in a good situation. They're in a really good conference on the on the more favorable side of the conference. I mean, it's, he's, it's tough to beat what he's got right now. Yeah, I mean, he's one of these guys who just seems to fit perfectly with the school that he's at. And uh, the next question we have also has to do with another school in Wisconsin's division. This is from Andrew Neva. Hi, Stu and Bruce. I love the show. As a diehard fighting Illini football fan, I wanted to get your opinion if we have finally turned the corner and on the road to relevancy with the commitment of two top 100 recruits, the addition of Rod Smith, the former Arizona OC, and the hiring of Corey Patterson, fast-rising coach from the St. Louis area, possibility of a monster recruiting class and a young, charismatic, and aggressive AD, Josh Whitman, can we say that the Fighting Illini are on the road to being relevant in the Big Ten West? I'm going to say no. You know, the I did see them get some recruits. I noticed it up on my Twitter feed, but the part that I would get have pause about, and granted, early, early signing period notwithstanding, you have a head coach who is going to be on the hot seat this year in Lovey Smith. And if they do not get rolling, and if they go off to you know a three and five kind of start, I don't know how that's going to go. You know, I just, I mean, to me, Stu, they did not show much. You know, I granted they were really young, but they did not show much in a really suspect division. And so, when you look at how this is going to play out for them, they got to get momentum in a hurry. So. You know, look, they got here's here's your first five games. Kent, they should win that. They have a uh, Western Illinois should win that. And then it's a USF at home, Penn State at home. If they don't win one of those two, and let's say they start out two and two, and out of four games, after that, I think it's going to be a problem for them. I just don't see them getting enough momentum. I can kind of see where this is headed. So it's true they've had a nice big. They've had some recruiting momentum right now, and the assistant he mentioned from St. Louis has had a lot to do with it. They got that guy, Isaiah Williams. He was a top 30 or 40 recruit, four or five star, something like that. And so everybody's getting all excited. But again, Lovey Smith's still the head coach. I've seen nothing from the first two years of the Lovey Smith era to believe that he's the long-term answer there. 
you know, one interesting thing I've noticed is Illini fans, really big on that AD. They love that AD, even though we haven't really seen anything yet come to fruition under him on the football field or the basketball court. So, I don't know, it could be a situation where if, if they do recruit well, that a new coach comes in in a year or two and reaps the benefits of that. But I don't necessarily see a big Illinois football breakthrough coming in this, come, this particular football season. Did you think Levy would have done better by now? I mean, he hasn't really done much at this point, but did you think he would have, like, has it been kind of a dud so far? Or was this kind of what you expected was going to take some time? Because remember, you know, what he inherited coming off of, you know, Tim Beckman had been a, a disaster the way that kind of imploded there. Well, I guess I would ask this. So the, the program, it's true, the program was a mess after Beckman in that year with the interim coach. So I don't think it would have been realistic to expect him to light the world on fire. What is the identity of Illinois football under Lovey Smith? We know what Wisconsin's identity is. We know what Nebraska's is going to be going forward with Scott Frost. Iowa's obviously Iowa with Ference and Northwestern. Like those programs have reached a point where you can kind of, you know what you're getting from them year in and year out. I don't know what the identity of Illinois football is. Well, they better find it really soon because they didn't win a Big Ten game last year. And they switched coordinators, obviously. Uh, you know, I think Rod Smith, if they have a guy who can run, you know, he's a Rich Rod guy, scheme-wise, I think they would have a chance. But just, I don't know, man. It just seemed like they beat Western Kentucky last year. It was a home game. I remember keeping an eye on that game and just thinking, oh, Western Kentucky is halfway decent. That's, that's a positive sign. And then, not only did they lose, I mean, I don't know if they got, I just remember they gave, like, Minnesota a good game. But after that, it was like everybody was kicking their behinds. You know, like I, I watched the South Florida game. I want to say it was on a, I was somewhere on the road. It was either a Thursday or a Friday night game. And then it was just, you know, it was bad all over. It really was. It's, real, it's a real puzzler. I think, you know, all of our uh, college football reference points are based at, at times on kind of when we started following the sport. And when I started following the sport closely, Illinois had just a unbelievable... Was, was, this, was this a Kurt Kittner, Brandon... No, uh, no, no. Team? Well before that. Although that was okay. a great team. No, the the Kevin Hardy, Simeon Rice... Okay. Yeah. You know, they were the known, known as a defensive power at that yeah, time. Yeah, Lou Tepper's era. Yes, Lou Tepper's era. So, I don't, I don't know. It's been a bizarre couple of decades. They had two great teams. The Well, great might be going too far, but the two really good teams, the Kurt Kittner team... And then and Zook had a good team. Zook had a team that went to the Rose Bowl, nine and four, but they still went to the Rose Bowl with Juice Williams. So, but outside of that, it's been pretty miserable. Finally, what would be a what would a mailbag segment be without a realignment question, Bruce? I thought you were going to say what would a mailbag segment be without Jason Gorluski, but Jason Gorluski uh, actually went AWOL this week. I see no questions from him. But are you getting together with him when you go to Clemson? Are you going to swing by Columbia? He's in. It, well, first of all, those two aren't particularly close to each other, but yeah, he's in Columbia. Scott Hansen, Bruce and Stu. By the way, I've gone back inside. This is a roving podcast. Bruce and Stu love the podcast. Please keep them coming. Five years after realignment, is it fair to say UConn is the biggest loser of conference realignment? Oh, that um, would it be a would it be a school that didn't get a chance and got squeezed out? Would it be? I'm trying to think. Play devil's advocate. I think he's right. I mean, Cincinnati and UConn basically I grouped together as teams that, and frankly, you notice it more in basketball. I mean, UConn was, I mean, UConn has won four national titles in the last 20 or so years in basketball, and now it's like they've vanished, and they just fired Kevin Ollie, but, you know, they're not in the 
Big East anymore. They're not in that, that conference where you see them every week. And Cincinnati's suffering from the same thing, although their basketball program has remained pretty good. Football, not so much. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like those two programs have really suffered from losing that, you know, the old football, basketball, Big East. Do you consider BYU as part of realignment? Yes, I do. So are you going to make the case that they've been the biggest loser? I don't know. Honestly, you're, I feel like you're better versed in this kind of thing than I am. Because I'm just thinking of the money. Because it's unfortunate because sometimes you group together while they're struggling in football right now. But I don't think that has anything. I don't think that has much to do with realignment. It's just right now their their head coach has has struggled quite honestly. And after Bronco Mendenhall left, yeah, BYU's issue is that it's hard for me to say they're the biggest loser in realignment because they they weren't. You know, the the two I just mentioned were in the Big East when the Big East was a BCS conference. BYU is in the Mountain West. Best case scenario, they're still in the Mountain West. You know, I don't, I don't think they'd be in a power conference right now by having stayed in the Mountain West. So, but I, you know, and, and I, it's not even clear. I mean, if you ask BYU fans, they're pretty split on whether, I know they don't want to go back to the Mountain West, but if you were to ask them, are they better off than they were then, they're pretty split on that. I mean, some people would say yes, because they have their own ESPN deal and they get exposure and they play a national schedule. And some people would say no, we're kind of out on an island, and they play a lot of high, you know, good teams early on out of conference, and then those teams go into their league schedule, and BYU just kind of falls off the face of the earth. They don't have an, uh, an automatic entry point to the uh, New Year's Six Bowls. Like UCF wins their conference last year and is the highest-ranked team. They automatically go to a New Year's Six. BYU doesn't have a conference to win. They have to finish. They have to have this great season and finish ranked highly enough to get into the, one of those bowls. So uh, I think they're kind of um, no man's land right now. And there's no great answer for that. The Big 12 isn't, doesn't look like that's happening. Pac-12, not interested. So I feel bad for them, but I don't think they lost the most from where they were five years ago as UConn and Cincinnati, and probably UConn a little bit more so. Hmm. Okay, well, I think that's a pretty good answer. Is that it for the mailbag? Because I know you got to get on the road, and next time we speak, I think I will be somewhere in Texas or maybe up at Nebraska. Oh, yeah, you're hitting the road as well. Yes, so uh, I'm going to You like go. to keep things a little more open-ended. I do. I think I'm a little more comfortable getting in the car and driving. I'm going to go to TCU. I may stop out and see North Texas and SMU while I'm there in the area, and then I'm going to go to Nebraska. I think I may get up to Ohio State. and may bounce around a little bit while I'm around there. Some so, of those places, wait, wait, wait. Some of those places are, now you're getting I pretty am not far driving. from Texas. I am not driving once I get to Nebraska, it's like a flight to Nebraska, and it's a flight to Columbus. Okay. I mean, for a second Nebraska. there, you made it seem like you're just going to hop in the car and say, like, I can hey, do that I'm- in Texas. You can't do that yeah. in Nebraska. But the only place I found out I could really drive to that I- is probably Iowa State. Hey, guys, uh, just coming past Omaha. I'm in the area. Are you practicing today? So it's not like that. No, it's not like that. So, And I was like, oh, let me see how long of a drive it is to Columbus. It's like 11 hours, so... I think I could have gotten to Iowa. Iowa State's a little easier to get to, apparently. But yeah, it's uh, so I'm not kind of in that mode of of where what can I get to from around here. Last year it worked out great. From from you can get to a lot of places from Columbus, but from Lincoln, Nebraska, not so much. Send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com just for fun, Bruce. Let's put ourselves at risk of being embarrassed. Want to give your quick pick for the game tonight that people aren't going to hear until after it's been played. I'm going to go with Villanova. Villanova, close. Villanova, 
crushing them? Villano- Villanova by, what's the spread, six and a half? Yeah. I'll take Villanova by at least seven. You? I'm going to take Villanova, but Michigan to cover. Okay. Well, that'll make it for an entertaining game. So. Let's, yeah, indeed. All right, let's see what happens. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about it for years. Ah, yeah. Whoa, whoa. Jump out of place, throw our money in the New York Stock Exchange. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.